Hey guys, before we dive into today's episode, I just want to let you know about a couple things that I think that you'll love. If you enjoy the Business and Leadership Podcast, you will most likely enjoy the Sunday Six. The Sunday Six is a Sunday newsletter that I send out every week, and it includes six interesting things that you can read in under six minutes. You can subscribe by clicking the link in the show notes or by going to jaredgrabiel.com. Um, of course, if you don't enjoy it, you can always unsubscribe, but I always recommend checking it out. And then two other resources, if you're really into business, leadership, self-help, self-growth, uh, check out the Self-Help Book, which is a book that I published January 17th of this year, and the Self-Help Journal, which is a great practical guide to self-awareness, which is arguably one of the greatest tools of leadership in today's world. Let's dive into today's show. This is the Business and Leadership Podcast with Jared Grabeel. Hey guys, welcome back to the Business and Leadership Podcast. This is your host, Jared Grabeel. And on today's episode, I have Mahmoud Abdelkader. Mahmoud is the CEO of Very Good Security, which is like a credit card network for exchanging data. Mahmoud co-founded and served as the CTO of a Y Combinator company called Balanced Payments, which was sold to Stripe in 2015. He's also an active angel investor, and he serves as an advisor to numerous fintech startups. So it's safe to say uh, both I and the audience will learn a lot of unique information today. Thanks for being on the show, Mahmoud. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. Likewise, man. And like I mentioned a second ago, um, this is not my... Uh, area of expertise. So I'm excited to dig a little bit deeper into an area that I've never really dug into. And I'm equally excited for the audience to learn along as well. Um, but before we dive, in, dive into that, some of the, some of that stuff, if you were to tell your story of how you got to where you are today in about two to three minutes, what would that story be? Oh, for sure. Uh, so, you know, I'm a first generation immigrant, immigrated from Egypt in uh, 1992 to New York City, right? Uh, Brooklyn, I went to PS185, right? Until, until I was about 14 years old, and then we moved to Maryland. That's actually where I consider my hometown is Maryland. Uh, I went to high school in Maryland, went to college in Maryland, and I graduated um, uh, from the University of Maryland, College Park, Magna Cum Laude, and then I went to uh, New York City where I worked uh, as a developer on you know at Wall Street building high frequency trading systems and then you know kind of got bit by the entrepreneurial the the the, the entrepreneurial spirit like the journey I wanted to go uh, a buddy of mine from college called me up and asked me hey you know starting a company in Palo Alto the same offices that Google was in like 165 University Avenue um, and you know I'm number he was like I'm number two you can come join us um, and I just loved it immediately. That's just what I wanted to do. And so I like, you know, joined that company called Milo.com. Was for, you know, it was number four, grew up to about 35 people, sold it to eBay. Um, and then kind of like then joined Y Combinator, built balance, and then uh and then you know, it's just kind of been doing companies ever since. And you know, just really like the fact that I can create something and push it out there and have people use it. That just gives me a lot of joy and meaning in life. Yeah. That's awesome. And that's, you know, that's like the uh, quintessential startup journey, um, uh, just in the fintech space. Are you saying I'm a cliche? Is that what you're saying? Uh, <laughs> I'm saying if it were a cliche, it's the cliche dream, you know, <laughs> if we're being honest. Um, it's a cliche that most people would like to live. <laughs> Let's yeah. just say that, right? Yeah. 
Um, because you, you know, you've got a ton of fans of the people that go to school in New York city and then they go to Palo Alto to be a part of a startup. They sell it, they start their own, right? Everyone loves Elon Musk. They love Steve jobs. And, uh, and so this is a, another one of those stories. So again, if it's a cliche, it's a good one. Oh, I, I, I'm happy you put me alongside those names. You know, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm worthy yet, but you know, appreciate that. It's very Absolutely. kind of you. You're still young. Um, <laughs> So uh, with that being said, you know, Milo got acquired. Were you a part of the acquisition uh, in terms yeah. of equity? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of the work that I was working on actually was, I think, some of the main reasons why Milo was acquired. Um, again, it was number four, so I was working on a lot of really cool things. But, you know, Milo was, you know, Jack Abraham, the CEO at the time, he's now CEO of a bunch of other companies, like a, an incubator called Atomic. He's doing very well. And we still, you know, stay in touch. Uh, he, he was a visionary. He kind of saw the world going where he needs to merge online and offline. And so that obviously involved a lot of really interesting ideas. He actually graduated from the University of uh, Wharton, right? Uh, like, yeah. Sorry, the University of Pennsylvania Wharton Business School. Um, he went there. Uh, I think he like dropped out with one credit left to go just to really get, get the dropout credit. It's uh, really cool. Uh, but he's um, he's obviously done very well. But you know, he was just just seeing him kind of like run the company, execute on that vision. That was really helpful. Um, but ultimately, he's the one who saw like, hey, how do I tie online to offline, and really bring that? And it kind of kicked off like Google Shopping, Amazon Prime, eBay Now. A lot, if you don't remember that, that's what eBay Now was actually powered by Milo. And so it was really the thing that was really cool. Like if you search for something that you needed right away you know, how do you go get it, right? And so now we have Prime, which has very interesting logistics and Instacart and various like DoorDash and Uber. But he, I think he was really the one that started it. He was like, oh, I think people want instant gratification. They want to search for a product and see if it's in stock nearby because they want it today, not shipped, you know, in days. And I really think that's kind of like what kicked off, you know, he's very early, but that's why eBay acquired them uh, and us too. So I think it was really interesting to see that. But that's kind of like what kicked off my passion for, okay, like, wow, like getting the product into the hands of the customers very quickly. Well, what does it take for us to be able to build the infrastructure that powers that? And then, you know, that's kind of like where the payments company came up. And it wasn't my idea. It was actually my co-founder's idea. He was like, I think we can solve a problem here for companies that are building marketplace like businesses like Uber, Lyft, and all these other companies. And he was like, um, and that's kind of like the company that we went and started it uh, it, uh, with Y Combinator called Balanced eventually. And we, uh, you know, that's where I was like, wow, like the t- tying commerce, tying payments, all of this are infrastructure plays. And so, you know, which ultimately led to this company, which is really hard to build those two companies because you first had to start out building a data security company internally, right? But you weren't like selling data security, you just had to do it. Sometimes you did it bad or poorly and sometimes you did it well. And you ended up getting audited. And it just felt like a, you know, I started a company to like build a payments organization, not to build a security company. Right? And so when I realized like, oh, it's the same thing as like racking your own data center or like building your own payments company internally for an e-commerce site. So I was like, maybe, you know, building a product that or a business that's solving a lot of the data movement issues where we can exchange value of data without actually exchanging the physical or the digital data itself. That's that's the idea. And so that's why, you know, we, the easiest way to think about it is, is credit card rails for data. When you and I exchange money today, right, we use 
rails that move money, but we physically don't, you know, possess cash. If I want to send you money, I just look you up on an app and I'll send you the cash there, right? It shows up into your account, but I've never actually physically like took some physical cash with me and then flew to your destination and gave it to you, right? And so how do I do the same thing with the value of data without the data itself? Uh, and there's some nuances to that, but that's the easiest way you can think about how this company came about and kind of like my journey from where I am today. But it really started at compounding you know, by seeing it, I have to solve a problem here, solve a problem here, solve a problem here. And then, you know, who knows what other problem I'm going to solve next. But, you know, I'm very excited to keep this one going. I think it's a really important one in this time and age. So it's safe to say that you started VGS, not necessarily out of a passion for cybersecurity, but because you saw a need? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's one of those companies that like just had this like really weird product market fit from the beginning. Most people are trying to start a company to then build a product that had product market fit. I think we knew that we had product market fit very early on because folks came to us and they were like, we need something like this. After we sold Balance, people reached out to us independently and they were like, I want everything that you're able to do for Balanced, but I don't want the payments piece. And so basically what they wanted was that sub company that we built internally that basically allows you to exchange that value of data right without having to have it and so uh, the idea is like in balance we have to like isolate all that data that's sensitive in a particular vault area and then like only you know on a need to know basis that you have to touch that that situation uh and so it turns out that that was like essential for a lot of companies to like innovate today with the explosion of fintech and healthcare and all these other things today a lot of folks need something like this to store their data right encryption is now a commodity but doing encryption right, securing your data correctly, I think is a more difficult part. Right. And you know, companies were just like, this is a headache. It's not my, my core of competency. I don't want to hire a security team right now. So I just want to be able to go to market and have adequate security, right? And then you know, be able to like, you know, go to market. And so that's really what VGS did is solve the problem that customers knew that they had, but didn't imagine the solution. You know, and I will say this to my team, my product teams, if I say, hey, if I came to you with a BlackBerry and I was like, the customer's biggest feedback is it needs to be, you know, the keyboard needs to be bigger and the screen needs to be larger. Are you the type of person that comes up and says, I will invent the iPhone with a digital keyboard and a larger screen, or I will just make a bigger BlackBerry. And that's ultimately what the customers wanted. Customers wanted the iPhone, but they're describing features of a bigger BlackBerry. And so that's really where VGS came about. It was like, okay, if we step back and really think what customers are trying to do, they want to exchange value of data without the liability, the regulatory overhead, the compliances, the scrutiny of holding that data itself. It's the same way that you and I exchange value of money without any, without building our own banks, right? And so that's that was kind of like the big aha moment for us, right? So how long from the acquisition of Balance to the uh, you know, creation of VGS did you go? Like how long were you, we'll just say unemployed? Uh, well, I was, I, was just, I was consulting and uh, I consulted for a few companies and I found out that they had a very similar problem. Um, and so about a year, about okay. a year. And so, and then, you know, started this one almost to the day, a year to the day uh, after I left Balanced. Um, just kind know. of like, yeah, I was just kind of like a year, literally to, I think to the day, I was like, okay, like, I'm going to start this thing. And um, I think it's important for us to do it because it's, I think it's, there's a big need for it in the market. And honestly, it started as a crazy exercise. It was like, look, 
if anything, this is just going to be like a nice little high ACV business. Um, and it was just me and my co-founder at the time. And then very quickly, you know, we're at 600K in annual recurring revenue. And him and I were looking like, whoa, like this is a company. And so that was like a really interesting realization for us. And, you know, his wife was, you know, eight months pregnant and we had to do something there because, you know, he needed insurance. <laughs> so, uh, so it was just, it was just really good to, to be able to, to start this. And, uh, yeah, that's yeah, kind of like, let's dig into that a little bit. I know, uh, you and your co-founder, his name's Marshall Jones. He was the VP of engineering, engineering at balanced. Um, yeah. and then you guys turned around a year later to start, uh, VGS and he's now the CTO. You're the CEO. Um, how did that come about with you two? Did you guys develop a relationship at Balanced? And then when you left, you both kind of just came together on this? Or what was what's kind of the story there? Yeah, him and I, him and I have always like talked about doing something together, I think even at Balanced, right? Because he wasn't the co-founder uh, at Balanced. But you know, he just felt like, you know, it's very hard to find someone that you can click with and like, you know, trust and you know, is a good person with good values, right? And so ultimately we just had that chemistry where, you know, I was very intense, very like focused. And he's very, you know, well, what can we do right now? He's very pragmatic to my idealism. And I think it just works really well. You know, I like to say he's the yin to my yang, or I'm the yang to his yang. Uh, to yang. And so like the idea is like, and so we've been, you know, we had a great relationship working at balance together. And so ultimately it was like, Hey, listen, like, do you think that you're the type of person that can go through the ups and downs in our, if we started a company together and, you know, I gotta say him taking that leap of faith with me when his wife was, you know, eight months pregnant was just really, I gotta say, like, I'm very thankful for it. You don't get to meet that many types of folks who are willing to do that, but that's ultimately what it is. Right. And so I, you know, I, I see people start companies alone and I'm just like, wow, that is super hard. Um, just because of the psychological turmoil and like, like I said, a startup's ups and down, man. Like one day you're like, I'm going to crush it. And the next day you're like, we're going to die. Right. And so yeah. it's just like, it's like, you know, you just need someone to be able to like, almost like be like a group therapy session. And the only person that's going to feel you is the other person that put in, you know, that owns 50% of the company as well. Right. So yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's the, that's a thing. And so being a solopreneur is a lot, probably like super hard, company, like a single yeah. parent or something. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, you guys started in 2015, right? 16. Okay. 2016. Yeah. Um, it's been five years. What, how have you guys grown since then? Like how did you do in 16, 17, 18, 19? So yeah, it's uh, it's very fascinating. So, you know, I, I could speak to him from, you know, from a CTO to a, like a VP engineer, to a CTO to a co-founder co title, but you know, as a CEO, I love to speak about myself for a little bit, right? I'm very much as an engineering background, it's very much like, Oh, you have an idea build it, you know, build it with your vision and then just ship it to the customer. Right. And then when you step back over time in 2017, right, let's say we've been in business for a year, hiring the right team, keeping the culture and then building layers of management has been probably one of the most challenging things I think as a company for us, right? Like we're so used to just like operating at a very small scale where we have direct involvement in day to day and then just being able to like hire and trust and delegate has been probably the key learning for both of us. But also at the same time, you know, there's two, there's two definitions of delegation. There's the delegation, which is like, Oh, delegate. I'll just take this thing off my plate and just lob it off to somebody else. And I, you know, 
that's delegation. That's not delegation, right? Delegation is really taking the ability for you, taking something that you do very well and making sure that whomever you've delegated to can do it either as good or better than you, right? And so that means that there's got to be a quality check there at some point. And uh, that's one of the biggest learnings was like, how do you effectively delegate while keeping the same level of quality? That's been quite a challenge and will continue to be to this day, right? Because, you know, as a as somebody that's like started the company, you're like, I see where the product should be. Why are we not there yet? And so how do you get somebody else to like be on the same mission as you uh, without, you know, physically holding their hand and doing it has been, it's been, it's, it's quite challenging and with COVID. It's even more challenging. Right. And so, yeah. and so that's really being able to like grow, inspire and lead has been, you know, tumultuous, but also has been, you know, very rewarding because people who stuck through it are, you know, are doing very well now. And like, we're, they're very essential to the, to the growth of the organization. Yeah. So, um, 2016, how did you guys finish like revenue staff wise? Yeah, I think it was just, uh, 2016. I think we're like roughly maybe like 700 K of MR of, uh, ARR. And then it was like three people, four people. Uh, and then, you know, we actually were very interested. We saw the writing on the wall very early on and we were like, the world has to adopt to remote. Everybody would tell you like, no, like everybody has to be in the Bay Area. And I was like, mm, I feel like that's limiting yourself for a pool uh, to can- of candidates that like, you know, have basic group think. So how do you, you know, how do you like figure out a way to like, what's a game theoretic way to like do this? And so Marshall, and I built the company with like distributed DNA from the beginning. And so we hired our first two employees, not in the United States at all, right? And so, uh, and we treated them just like employees, right? Like, and so it was just like really interesting to build that muscle of dis- of being a distributed company early in 2016. So yeah, we had four people, two, two were uh, in Europe and two were here. And so him and I, and so that's kind of like how we ended 2016. 2017 is when we grew, we raised our series A, so we we're like, we have to grow. So we hired a lot more people. Um, which is not necessarily a good thing because remember, you have to keep the culture the same. And so we did a good job hiring, I think the first 10 people of the company, 10, 20 people of the company. Um, and so, you know, ultimately that was like, you know, that one, we ended three X revenue from where we were. Um, and so began our journey really. And so uh, I think we ended at like, tw- we were like a 20 people at the company at that time. And then it started three Xing year over year. Right. And then it was like three X revenue the next year but 3X the employee count, and then it started 2Xing, right? And now we're 2Xing. And so, um, and so that, that's really, that's really, that's really, you know, what happened today in the company. And as you grow that many people, enforcing that culture across them becomes a very big logistic challenge. It's just like a logistical nightmare. And so, um, so they have to make sure that you're able to like, no, it's no longer telling a computer what to do. It's like, helping inspire this team that has literally like joined you on this journey to work uh, to towards a common goal. And that that's really cool. Like, I think that's really cool, but also extremely challenging. And it's been, you know, I'm still learning. Right. What is, uh, so you've, you've done a series A, have you guys fundraised outside of the series A? Yeah, we've raised a series B and a series C. Okay. Um, you know, I think we've raised a total of $105 million, which is like, honestly, like, 
mind blowing when you think about it, right? And so, um, but the company's doing you know the company's doing well in terms of like you know financially from a revenue perspective, but also you know I think about it from a adoption. You know, revenue comes as a byproduct of kind of like the the, the product, and so the really cool thing is like this adoption of zero data was just seeing it like as a really key differentiator where people are starting to be like, Oh yeah, you're right. I don't need my data to like extract value from it. Just like, I don't need my cash on me to be able to purchase things. And it's like, yeah, you don't. And let me show you all these different really cool use cases, but seeing companies like get that aha moment has been very rewarding for the rest of the company and me particularly, because it was like, Whoa, this is a real thing. This is a real, real thing. You can build this now. Um, and extract value and it's in production and people are seeing it and they're like, wow, we can go to market so much faster. Um, and we've seen use cases and people raise money and build features and ship them faster than, you know, months faster than they would otherwise. Right. And so that's, that, that's really cool for us. Can you explain this zero data thing to like yeah. the average Joe? For sure. Zero data. is just like, do you remember Salesforce's no software? Right. And as a software, as software engineer myself, I was like, what do you mean no software? I'm literally writing software right now. Right. And so um, no software was not about that. No software exists. It's the maintenance and operational overhead of installing and maintaining software yourself was not necessary because you could just use the cloud or SaaS as a SaaS subscription for Salesforce. So zero data is very similar to that message. It's you don't need to possess your data to be able to maximize its value in the same way that you don't need to possess your cash physically in order for you to transact with it. So zero data is about, can you do the operations that you would need, that you would normally do? Like, you know, fight fraud, charge a card, run a background check, issue a loan, provision a credit card, all these different things without physically needing to see the sensitive data? And the answer is yes. Yes, you can. And VGS has 500 plus customers that are in production today that do that today, right? So by definition, this is a viable product. This is a viable vision, a viable mission. And the idea is that zero data in the simplest term is value of data without liability of possession of the data, right? That's really, that's really what it is. And what, who would be a couple of recognizable companies out of the 500 plus uh, for the audience that you guys are currently working with? Yeah, I mean, look, we have, uh, you know, uh, our Series C announcement mentioned DoorDash, right? Um, you know, that's a big one that you can recognize. Uh, the, yeah. other, the other one is um, Texas Capital Bank. So if you, you're in Dallas, you'll see that that's actually with their headquartered in, you know, in, in Dallas. And uh, Texas Capital Bank, they have chains all over and we power a big portion of their business. Right commercial card. And we have a public case study about that. It's a public company. So these are things that folks will recognize. These are people who have adopted the ability to say, yeah, we don't need our data in order to extract value from it. In fact, this will make us go faster and build better products for our customers, right? There's startups like Brex, they use VGS. And so, um, and so things like this is really interesting for us to, to be able to be in the middle of and power today. Yeah, that just makes me think so much about a, a world that I didn't really knew existed prior to this conversation. Yeah. Uh, and I want to talk about a couple of things. Let me know if, if these are irrelevant, then just let me know. Oh. Whenever, um, whenever I began to prep for this interview, I, I thought of a couple of things that were in the news, right? Uh, the, the hack that the colonial pipeline data breach, you know, that costed $4.4 million in ransom. Um, and then of course I come from the fitness industry, but, uh, food specifically, 
And, you know, it was a big deal that JBS, the world's largest meat supplier, they paid $11 million in Bitcoin to data hackers. Is that relevant to this conversation? It is. And so the way these ransomware attacks work is effectively, you know, because you have the data where that ransomware is running, right? What ends up happening is the viruses that are installed basically end up locking that data by traversing your network, right? And so the whole concept of zero data is like, let's say that virus does that today. Okay, well, there's no data for them to lock. So there's nothing for them to ransom. Do you understand what I'm saying? The number, there's like two or three ways you can protect yourself against ransomware. One is the simplest thing is like, oh, let's back up everything and have snapshots. So like if there is ransomware, we'll just restore from a snapshot in time, right? That's a really clever way of doing it. But what if the ransomware gets in the backup? Okay. The second thing is, you know, you basically are, uh, you, um, the the second thing that you can do is you can effectively uh, not necessarily, um, you can do something where uh, you pay, you pay the ransom to get the data back, right? That's the other way you could do it. Um, And the, the third option is just not to have data to be ransomed in the first place. Like, you know, that's the whole idea is like, if you don't, if you treat your data just like money today, so what if they took my credit card number? Okay, I'll just call the credit card company and be like, hey, can you send me an loan? Problem solved, right? And that's that's the real idea. And so why can't we have that experience when the data is being hacked, right? The, obviously, you know, you, you, the question you should be asking is like, well, what about VGS? Like how, what happens if they get hacked? What happens if there's ransomware on our side? It's like, yeah. I completely agree with you, right? But that's what our core focus is. Our value proposition to you as a consumer is that that's what we sell. It's not free, right? It's like, you you know, you have to use this product and we will, you know, that's what we invest in. That's not a byproduct. This is what we do, right? This is our core focus. So we stay on top of these threats so that if you're a gas company, you don't stay on top of these threats, right? If you're, you know, a software company, you'll stay on top of these threats. That's what you hired the experts for. And that's hopefully what we were able to demonstrate today, right? So is it safe to say that if Colonial Pipeline or JBS were to hire you previously, that this wouldn't have happened? If did, I would say instead of saying hiring us, because I think it's important for us not just to say, just say it's not by BGS, but it's important to say like, if they didn't have the data, then yeah, they wouldn't have paid those ransoms, right? If there's no data for them to steal, then what's there to steal, yeah. right? And so you can't hack what's not there, right? Good clarification. Yeah. What is the greatest uh, motivator for you, Mahmoud, that keeps you so driven to accomplish this mission. And if it's, if it's capital gain, right. You can be honest with me, right. If there's a lot of money, no, to be made, no. it's like this mission, is it the mission or. Look, I've been very fortunate in my life where I like, you know, it's not just capital gains anymore. Right. That's that used to be when I was younger. Right. Again, immigrant didn't really have much going up. Sure. I think we came here with like $200 or maybe less than a thousand bucks in our pockets as my family. So, you know, I'm very, we've been very fortunate, very blessed, um, you know, very thankful for kind of like where we are in this country and everything it's given us. But the, the thing that, you know, really makes it worthwhile for us is I genuinely believe that the current state of data security and data privacy is, has not caught up with the way we use our data today. And I feel that a lot of the products that are being built today 
are not from operators, but from people who start businesses because they see an opportunity in the market today. And if you've ever operated something like a balanced, right, or like a Milo, you realize that data is everywhere and, you know, it becomes this mental tax that you have to pay. And it's just, I think it's ridiculous to expect everyone to build the equivalent of their own bank just to be able to do it because there are people who will build it properly, like the Googles, the visas, right? And there are people who don't build it properly. And you can start to list Google data breach list and those are the people who did not build it properly. So the question becomes, you know, the question becomes, is there a world where we can treat data in the same way as uh, and operate with our data today and build trust infrastructure and extract that value from the data in the same way that we use money today? Because money is relatively protected, as I explained, right? Like you have a lot of consumer protection and it's very convenient for you and they generate all these loyalty rewards for you. That's fantastic. But can you create the same level of interactions and frictionless experience so it's no longer just about commerce but any type of data because if you think about what is the commerce piece it's just a transaction with data of type payments data right of that class of payments data if we can create that level of interaction for just a normal set of any type of data then then i think a lot of innovation will start to exist and a lot of the laws that you know potentially might be holding um, innovation start uh, leveling the playing field, so you have a lot more innovative companies that are generating. So that's really what keeps me up. That's what excites me. It's just like the cool things that people are doing on our platform now that they're not encumbered by regulatory overhead. Right? Yeah, that's awesome. And your experience so far, at least from what I know of your story, Mahmoud, is is you've sort of gone from uh, win to win to win. Right? College to a good job, to startup, to sale, to startup, to sale, to where you are now. Um, so I'm sure it hasn't all been uh, sunshine and rainbows. Do you have uh, a, f- a failure, a major failure, a favorite failure in your experience, or has it all been wins for you? No, no, no. I can't tell you it's all been wins. There's no way, right? Anybody tells you it's all been wins, it's, either been, it's almost like survival bias at this point. I, I can't trust anything that somebody says, right? <laughs> um, it's There's actually a lot of failure that goes in behind there. Like the exit at Balance was not the best exit, right? We were able to get an exit, but it's not the best given the potential of that company, for example. Um, you know, while, you know, and, and, you know, being able to get it, but it, it does require like a massive sacrifice of hard work and tenacity. I think it's very easy for folks today to give up and, it's almost like the world is against you because they're like, yeah, no, that's not the way it's, the world should be. And you're like, you know, your job as an entrepreneur is to say, okay, well, I'm my job as an entrepreneur is to change the world to make it, you know, what's in my mind. I might push the vision into reality. And so by definition, that means that it's like Galileo Galilee. I'm not saying I am Galileo Galilee, but it's like, it's, it's very similar. Like you, the world is round and it revolves around the sun and like everyone else is like, nah, it's flat. And the, the universe revolves around us. And so like by definition, entrepreneurship is an uphill battle. Right. And so I think you just have to be comfortable with rejection. And there's so many, I started to start a social network uh, when I was in New York city that failed, right. Like uh, pretty quickly. Like I start to, I tried to start a couple of companies before this company 
um, those failed. And so it's just like, you know, failure is just part of the experimental process. Right. And so, but it, it does take tenacity. It does take effort for you to grow something and just know that the default state of entrepreneurship and startup is failure. It's the work you put in to make it not fail, right? Like there's so many domain names that I have acquired of ideas that I've never executed on or I've failed that I just, and it's one of those things where you, if I have to give you one lesson, it's be comfortable with failure, right? Like there's nothing else I can tell you that's going to change your mind, but like, it's very hard when you take it personally, instead of just being like, I failed, I just have to recover very quickly. Right. So that's like the best lesson I can give or the best way I can, you know, the best, the most common failure that I've done. Right. Uh, that, that I can give you, but it's not been, it's not been, uh, all roses and sunshine. Like you, like you're making it out to be here, but <laughs> oh, no, I wasn't trying to, uh, I know, I know, I know. I'm just joking. You know, you've been a CEO for five years now. Um, it, in your opinion, what do you think makes a good leader? If you were to name one to three like character traits, what would they be? I think compassion, right? I think you have to be kind, right? And sometimes you can't be intense. Intensity might not be for everybody, okay? I think that's number one. Number two is you have to lead by example, Right. So many times I've seen people who call themselves leaders, but just are not like, you know, think that they're too arrogant or, you know, are not above the, the, the hard work. And it's important for people to realize that you're willing to roll up your sleeves and do the hard work alongside of them. Right. That's the difference I think between a leader. And I think it's such a critical part. And the third thing is you have to just constantly be, keeping your, you know, keeping your eyes on the ball. You have to be able to say no leaders that say yes to a lot of things are probably like meaningless leaders. You have to be able to say no and you have to be comfortable to say no and receive a lot of no's. Right. And so the best leaders are the ones who are focused, who are empathetic and kind and compassionate as well as the ones that do not shy from hard work. And on my Slack message, it actually says janitor. And I say that every time in my all hands meeting. And I was like, because there is no shame and unclogging that toilet if the toilet needs to be unclogged, right? right? You cannot shy away from hard work, regardless of your title. And that's really, really critical. And I want to make sure that everybody in our company understands that, right? It's not about status or ego. It's checked at the door, you know? Love it. A couple uh, rapid fire questions before we close out this interview today. Yeah. One is, um, and this one you might, you know, you might have to think for a moment, but what do you think your 10 year older self would give you as advice today? Build a more experienced team around you faster. <laughs> Seriously. It's like, I don't have to think about that one. I could tell you right away. That's one of the things that I think we're struggling with is like understanding how to place, you know, you know, my, my wife always says this, she says, you know, one of the things you should be thinking about as a CEO is like placing the white ball. You know, how do you play? And if you're playing a game of pool, placing the white ball is basically half the battle. So she's like, she's always saying like, how do you place the white ball such that your 10 year old self can go back and thank you for placing the white ball properly. And I'll tell you that my 10 year old self will come back and tell 10, 10 years older than me would come back and say, Hey, you should have placed the white ball earlier here, there, and there. And you should have been able to hire this team faster here and here and here are the properties of the person that you'd be able to, 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 to get around you. Cause that's super important. And then the, the second thing I'll say is like, get a executive coach earlier. That's very critical, right? 
what one or two, maybe three books would you recommend, or maybe that are your most favorite that you've read, whether they're in business, fiction, um, anything? Oh man, I have, I read books all the time. I think, you know, it depends, it depends on kind of like, you know, one of the things is obviously high output management was the one that I think is really interesting. Um, the other one is actually, this one's actually really interesting. It's called your next five moves. It's uh, called master the art of it's your next five moves, master the art of business uh, strategy. I think it's a really cool one. And then, you know, ultimately the other one that I really like is uh, something that's called like the growth mindset. Right. And so like, how do you think about growing uh, and becoming a leader to grow your organization. So those things are, those, those three books are, I think are super, were super helpful for me, right? High output management to see like, okay, what does it look like if I managed a 10,000 company by Andy Grove, right? The, your next five moves is like, how do you think and explain your strategy simply? Like I read a lot of strategy books and this one was really, I think was a really easy one uh, to, to grok. And then the last one was, you know, um, the growth mindset, which is like, how do you, you know, think about growth, which is really what, the CEO's job is, it's just growth, right? Yeah. And my last interview said that same book. Really? Yeah. Cool. Um, what is a purchase you've made for say under a hundred bucks, uh, your favorite purchase in the last three months? Oh man. I have one of those, um, I might, might be up here. I have one of these, uh, oh, here it is. Uh, this thing. Oh yeah. That's great. Yeah. What just like called? this. It's a, I, I don't even know what it is. It's one, it's a, it's called, um, it's, a, it's called a Liba. And basically you put that, it's like a really awesome thing that just makes you get a lot of knots when you're stressed out. And so you just sit there all the time, just, you know, do this like this. Yeah. For the, the audience that can't see what we're talking about, it's a tool. I'm sure you can get it on Amazon. Um, that's got a, it's a, like a curved stick. That's got a handful of stuff that you can work out different kinks in your neck and your back. I actually, bought that after reading one of Tim Ferriss's books. Oh, really? Um, because he asked somebody else the same exact question and they said that. Oh man, I, 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 didn't, I didn't realize that. Do you know who it was? Because I, I've been, I have like one of these upstairs and one downstairs. It's just like, I'm constantly just like, you know, foam rolling or, you know, taking the knot out. It's very, very interesting. Um, yeah, I wouldn't know who it was. I mean, he's interviewed at this point thousands of people, but um, this last question I also get from Tim Ferriss because I think it's fascinating. I don't know that he asks it every time, but if you could put anything on a big blank billboard above the busiest intersection that you can think of, what would that billboard say? How controversial do you want me to, to say here? Well, you get, you know, it's your billboard. Um, what message do you want to put out to the world? Get vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that too is that too political? I don't know. I, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, this uh, this particular show has no political agenda, so you get to have your opinions. Okay. Um, <laughs> I don't know that that's necessarily that offensive. Uh, uh, but fortunately for you, there's a ton of billboards that already say that. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think ultimately, look at the end of the day, it's like you know we have to try to get business back as usual, right? I think we need to be able to start to traveling. Like I need to be able to see customers face to face. I want to be able to visit them. I want to be able to see them. Right. I also want to see like, you know, I, but at the same time, family, like, you know, there's a lot of folks that depend on a lot of these industries to be able to put food on their table. And, you know, the, the more we delay, the more I think economic recovery is going to be delayed yeah. and ultimately it just has cascading effects for the rest of the country as well as the world. And so for me, 
that's ultimately the thing that's top of mind right now is like, how can we get everybody back such that we can give that, create that equal opportunity for folks so that they can have this opportunity to be able to like you know, work hard and provide. That's really, really important for us. Right. So the billboard, yeah. I mean, I, I have a few things that I can say on that billboard that, you know, regarding like, you know, um, data or whatever, but I think this one's a super top of mind is like, how can we get the company back, uh, the country, the country back, um, to normal and really, really execute. Right. Yeah. And you're in Northern California, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm from the Southeast Florida. I, all, our audience is all over the country, but for context, things are a lot different for you up in that climate than they are for me in Florida and, and in the, the Southeast. And that's region. the thing. And look, I, 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 I feel for them and I want, I, is there anything I can do to help? That's kind of like the thing I'm trying to get. It's like, I just, that's why I really, I'm thinking about that. Right. It's like, how can we get back to normal? And I think it should be on every, if you have any ounce of leadership and you have the ability to influence that, like that should be top of mind for you. Right. Love it. Well, Mahmoud, thanks again uh, for your time today. I've had a, I've had a lot of fun actually learning more about what you do um, and how important that is to the infrastructure of these businesses. Uh, if people want to learn more about VGS or you, how can they find out more? Oh, yeah, website verygoodsecurity.com. Uh, and there's a, there's a backstory to that name, by the way. Or you can go on Twitter and at getVGS. So get G E T and then VGS, right? Um, and so, yeah, but it's one of those things where, you know, and then from there you can find either my Twitter or my link or whatever. Um, and I'm happy to, you know, chat on LinkedIn. I'm happy to talk to folks, whatever, um, on Twitter. But, you know, always happy to, you know, serve as an ear or advisor of some kind. Awesome. Thanks again for being on the show, man. Until next time, have a great day. Cheers. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Before you go, I have a couple asks of you. Number one, if you enjoy the Business and Leadership Podcast, I highly recommend you checking out the Sunday Six. Uh, the Sunday Six is a newsletter that I send out every Sunday with six interesting things that should take you about six minutes or less to check it out, unless you decide to go on one of the rabbit holes of the links that I include in the email. It's definitely worth checking out. And of course, if you don't enjoy it, you can always unsubscribe. You can check out the Sunday Six by uh, looking in the show notes. There's a link there or going to jaredgrabiel.com and subscribing. Additionally, of course, January 17th, I published my first book, The Self-Help Book. And if you enjoy the content in the Business and Leadership Podcast, you'll most likely enjoy the book. You can read it in under two hours. It's very applicable, extremely practical. You can pick up one chapter and apply it to your life, or you can read the whole thing. Um, the self-help book can be found at amazon.com or anywhere online that books are sold. And last but not least, the self-help journal. Of course, if you enjoy the book, you'll love the journal. It's a practical way to apply some of the steps to your life. Um, self-awareness is a huge tool in business and leadership and journaling. Whether you use mine or anybody else's is going to be the best step you can take towards gaining self-awareness. So I recommend checking that out. Just search the self-help journal, Jared Grabiel on amazon.com. It's currently for sale for $9.99. And again, if you enjoy the show, please do two things. Refer it to a friend and leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast. Thanks again. Much love and God bless.